Good to see you. Um, this, we come to a transition time in, um, in the story. We've been in the story now for, we're in week, I think, 20, week 20 of the story. Um, we're getting near the end of the Old Testament. Um, next week, Dan Baker, who's our children's pastor, will be teaching you the very last lesson and uh, story uh, in the Old Testament. That's on Nehemiah. I'm kind of like upset because I planned my vacation a long time ago, not knowing where this is going to be in the story. <laughs> And, uh, but I can't be too upset. I'm going to be in Florida next, uh, actually Wednesday. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, so, you know, you can pray for me there and everything. Um, but, uh, we're going to be doing that. Dan's going to be doing that. And then the following week, uh, I'm getting back on, on a Friday and then we're going to have Married Life Live and I'm going to be teaching that. I encourage you, I encourage you to attend Married Life Live. It is a totally, if you've never been to Married Life Live, Married Life Live, I can't t- say that, um, it's totally different than anything we do. We have round tables. We have uh, music that's kind of a mixture of secular and, and sacred. Uh, and we do a lot of stuff that you probably did when you were dating. A lot of songs, you know. Uh, the good songs you can sing in church. And uh, <clears throat> we do that. We have some drama. We have some really cool dramas going to be uh, looking at. And then also our theme for this time is the finishing together. We have six essentials. And finishing together deals with... Uh, the whole thing of, of sticking together. And so we're talking about expectations and how those expectations can, can cause us to not stick together in our marriage and why we need to make sure we have the same level set in regards to expectations uh, in our marriage. And so I'll be teaching that when I get back. And then that next day, which is on a Sunday, uh, Chris Genders is going to start us off in the New Testament uh, with our first New Testament lesson in the story. We'll actually be going back to Christmas, you know, because that's the beginning of the New Testament. And so we'll be there uh, to kind of transition. And so looking forward to what what goes on there in the story. Uh, This morning, I want to share with you uh, something that happened. I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and he was uh, sharing with me. He's a guy that uh, lives in this area, and he he grew up in this area, and so he's really familiar with all the streets and everything. And he was telling me, you can't, he said, you will not believe what happened to me. And I said, what? He said, I was going over to town, and I had to go through this. I don't, he told me where he was going. I didn't know where it was. And he said, I, I was on my way there, and I was late for this meeting. And so, so what I decided to do is take a shortcut through one of the neighborhoods, because I know all the roads. And so I was driving down this road in this neighborhood, a two-lane road. You know, it was not one of those four-lane roads where you pass or anything. And he said, as I was driving down this road, this little old lady pulls out in front of me. And, you know, like, I'm just like, and, she, and I slam on the brakes, and then she pulls out in front of me, and then she goes like five miles an hour. And she's just going, you know, and I'm right on her bumper, you know, and I'm upset. I'm thinking about this meeting. And he said, you know, the thing is, that morning I hadn't had my quiet time or anything, so he said, I really wasn't really right with God, so I was kind of like upset. And he said, finally, I said, well, God, you know, must be teaching me patience here. So he said, I backed off a little bit. And then I noticed that this little old lady in her Buick, um, had um had a bumper sticker on the back of her car and it said honk if you love jesus he said he said well i thought about it and he said well it's on the car i'm a christian i love jesus so went you know on in the car and he said, then the next thing you would not believe what happened next. Little old lady rolls down the window, sticks out her hand, and gives me the finger. <laughs> and you know which finger I'm talking about. <laughs> now, before we get upset with that little old lady, we don't know what her situation was. I, she, she may have had that sticker on there for a long time. She may have forgotten she had the sticker on her car. She may have gotten up that morning and, you know, had 
forgotten her decaf and had to drink, you know, caffeinated or something or whatever. Uh, she may have had some issues. She may be having a bad day. We don't know what the deal is with the little old lady, but, you know, she, whatever. And I'm sure she wasn't thinking, you know, at that point about the bumper sticker on the back of her car, honk if you love Jesus. She probably didn't even think about that when she gave the guy the finger. Uh, but before we get all upset, I want to talk today about how we do that to God all the time. How sometimes we give God the finger. Maybe not literally, but figuratively. Um, and before we do that, I need to define, you know, as a Christian, how we can do that. And I need to define the term Christian because sometimes we have this different understanding from where you are. I, this morning, there's, there's different groups of people. There's some of you just kind of showed up and, and you, you're really kind of exploring this whole thing of Christianity. You're not really sure where you are with God. And you have varied background. Many of you have been Christians, followers of Christ for years. But wherever you are, let me define some things. First of all, being a Christian does not mean that you prayed a prayer one time saying, please, dear God, do not let me go to hell. Okay? If you just prayed a prayer and that's all you wanted, you just didn't want to go to hell. That doesn't make you a Christian just because you pray a prayer one time to do that. Uh, being a Christian also does not mean that you went through a confirmation class when you were 12 years old, but you never really met Christ. The only thing was confirmed is that you don't know Christ. Another thing that being a Christian does not mean is that you were, when you were an infant, a priest threw some water on you while you're wearing a white gown. That does not mean you're a Christian either. See, according to scriptures, a Christian is someone, this is a biblical definition, is someone who has recognized the fact that we are separated from God, that God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross, that Jesus Christ alone paid for our sins, and by receiving him into our lives, and we've received him into our lives and have committed our life to Christ and have said to him, I will follow you the rest of my life no matter what. That is a follower. That is a biblical definition of what a Christian is. Someone who has made that commitment to Christ. I will follow you no matter what in my life. So using that definition of a Christian, the thing is fine until God asks us to do something that makes us uncomfortable. And when we hear God clearly speak through his word or through a speaker, and we don't respond to what God is doing, and we've said to God somewhere along the way, I'll follow you no matter what, and God prompts us through reading his word or through prayer or through a speaker or whatever, and we don't respond, guess what that's doing? It's giving God the finger. That's what we do when we don't follow him, when he prompts us in our life to do the things that he wants us to do. Because, see, God is, is, going to do, is going to ask us to do something sometimes that's uncomfortable. He will do that because he's more concerned, and I've said this a thousand times, I'll say a thousand times more. He's more concerned with our character and our growth toward Christ's likeness than our comfort. So the question we're going to look at this morning, the big question is this. Am I more concerned about my comfort than his kingdom? Am I more concerned about my comfort than his kingdom? And I need to tell you this, and this is important this morning. This is a great story in Scripture we're going to look at in a few moments. But uh, so often, Christians aren't taken seriously. You know why? Because one of the main reasons we aren't taken seriously is we focus so often more on our comfort than on His kingdom. We spend so much of our time as Christians in activities that separate us from non-Christians, the people that Christ died for. And so this morning, this is a challenge. This, this story in Esther is going to be a challenge to us to, to step up. 
and to be what God has called us to be and to do what God has called us to do. And so we're going to talk today about this, how to quit giving God the finger, okay? I'm sure that's what you thought you were going to have this morning when you came in. But this is very vivid and hopefully will be something you'll not forget for a long time. And the story is in Esther. Esther is an interesting book in the Old Testament. It's kind of in the middle, but actually in the flow of things. Remember, the story is chronological. This is where it fits chronologically because of the timeline here. And in Esther 1.1, it says this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. And so it's talking about this period of time where there's this King Xerxes. Uh, and remember what has happened so far. The, kingdoms of, uh, the kingdom of, of, of Israel has fallen to the Assyrians and, and they're no longer even in existence. And, and the kingdom of Judah has, has fallen to the Babylonians, but then they had made a comeback and, and they were actually allowed to go back and actually rebuild the temple. And so there are people once again. But there's this large group of people who did not go back to Jerusalem, did not go back to Judah. A large group of people who went into exile and they're still living in all these different places. These Jews who are living all over the place. And now the major kingdom of, the, of that day is a kingdom uh, called Persia. And the king is Xerxes. And it's, it's a huge kingdom. It, it's, its provinces are, like I said, 127. It stretches from India to Cush. It's a large area of space there. And we begin the story, and it's interesting here, when we read the story, if you've read the story this week, you read almost all of the book of Esther. You only missed one chapter. I don't know why they left the last chapter out, but they did. But you read nine of the ten chapters of the book of Esther. You probably read it in about 30 minutes, right? You know, something like that. It's really short. It doesn't take long to read. Uh, but, but it's a really uh, incredible book. But what starts off is King Xerxes, who was very powerful, he decided what he was going to do was show his power. And what he did is he decides to throw a party. And it wasn't just any party. And I don't know how many of you guys were, uh, guys and girls, uh, were party animals when you were back in... Not all of you are Christ, were Christians when you were in college, right? Uh, or maybe even your adult life. Some of you probably went to parties. You, I was not a party animal when I was growing up. You know, I was, I know, I was just a fuddy dud. And uh, the thing is, it, it, some of you probably went to parties, you know, lasted all weekend. You know, in college, a lot of people did that. I've heard some of your stories. You've told me the stories. And, uh, you, know, you know, and I don't dis, you know, disbelieve them. But this Xerxes, he decided to throw the party of all parties. It lasted six months. A six-month-long party. Now, that is one party is all I can say. And that wasn't enough. He decided when he finished that six-month-long party, he decided to throw another after party that was a week long. And that's what he did. He, he throws this after party that's a week long. And, and, uh, and so this is what it says in Esther chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. It says what's going on. It says, on the seventh day of that after party, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine. What does that mean? He was blasted. Okay. He commanded the seven eunuchs who were serving him. And it says in there what their names were. To bring him before him Queen Vashti. He had a queen. Her name was Vashti. And he says, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal, royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. <laughs> now, I've read all kinds of commentaries this week on regard to this. <laughs> Some commentators believe that this is a bunch of drunken guys sitting around, and they say, bring the queen. he says, bring the queen in, wearing her crown. And, and some of them say that maybe, the way the wording is in Hebrew, it may be that they said, bring her in wearing only her crown. But that would make sense with a bunch of drunken guys, right? At a party, you know? 
So you can imagine, just, just picture this here, but even if she was fully clothed, bring her in because we want to look at her. I mean, she's eye candy. And so that's what it is. It says, but when the attendants, next part of the verse, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And then the king became furious and burned with anger. He was mad at her because she wouldn't show up and parade herself around, you know, before these bunch of guys who were drunk, and, and, you know, at, at this big party they've been having. Because Queen Vashti had been having her own party, it says. But probably it was more of a tea. I don't know. You know, I don't know what it was. But it says she'd had her own thing so that women were separated from the guys. And so then what happens is, is he gets together with some of the leaders, it says, some of his other leaders, which was kind of common in that day. And he says, what do I need to do to this lady? She won't obey me. And so they pass a law. And this is the law. It's not going to be, not going to be on your screen, but it's in verse 19 and 20 of Esther chapter 1. It says, therefore... This is the law. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue it at royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. I wonder if Vashti, when she heard this, was going like, where's the punishment? (laughs) Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, this is the good part, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Ladies, would that do it for you? Would you respect your husband greatly if you heard this edict that the king has banned his wife because he was drunk and wanted her to parade around, you know, so he bans her from, from the household forever? Would that make you respect your husband more? See, but that's, that's why, guys, that's why women think that we're just dumb. Because we say things like that, well... You know, she used to follow me. And, you know. No one would respect her husband more because of that. So in the story today, what we're going to talk about here is that's, that's the setting of the story. They have this party. Queen Vashti's been dispo, disposed of. That's deposed. I think that's the word. Deposed. She's no longer a part of the kingdom. She's been put aside. And we see, see in the story that other characters are going to come into it here as well. And, there's, and today what we see in the story of, of Esther, which we're going to look at here, is three options we have with the way we follow God. And why only one of them works. Why only one of them is the way God wants us to follow him. And if we do the first two, all we're doing is giving God the finger in a real sense. The first thing is, the first way we can follow God is this. I will follow you if. I will follow you if. In Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says this. Later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he finally, I guess he sobered up. (laughs) And he got a little more sense. He says, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. He started having some you know, warm com- feelings about her from her past. And then the king's personal attendants proposed, let, let a search be made for some beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. That was the kingdom's capital. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. I mean, he's going like, "Yeah, that sounds like a good idea." And so, what we have is the first bachelor. <laughs> Literally, you know. Think about it. You know, I mean, I never watched that show, but uh, don't raise your hand if you do. Um, I'm not going to explain. I'm not even going there. 
Uh, I can say some things about that. But anyway, um, but so but basically it's the first bachelor is what it is. And what it is is that, and we know that he said there was 127 provinces, so there were at least 127 women. They brought, it was this huge group of women to go, and they were to have, they were the most beautiful women from all the different provinces, and they were to come before the king. But, it, but before they do that, it was going to spend, spend a whole year of beauty treatments. I'm going a whole year? How long does it take to get ready for a date? Women, how, just to be honest, how many of you spent more than an hour ever getting ready for a date? Any of you here? Come on. Raise your hand if you're... Be honest, be honest. 30 minutes? Okay. How many of you had more fun getting ready for the date than in the date itself? <laughs> Some of you said, I don't remember dating. It's been so long. I don't know. But the issue is, the issue is, so they, they, they does this. And so they, the, for a year, they get ready for a year to be brought before the king. And, and, and so what we learn is a girl named Esther. There was a girl named Esther as one of the contestants in the, in the, the Bachelor... Uh, Persia, and, uh, and she stands out in the competition. And if you've been on the outside looking at the story, looking in at the story, you've probably been pulling for Esther because she's an underdog. Because you know of her background, if you knew of her background, you would consider her an underdog in this because of knowing some things about her. Even though she was beautiful, her family had been uprooted from Israel. Probably her home burned. She was probably marched across the desert with her family, or at least her family members had marched across the desert. Uh, she was taken to a foreign land, and at some point we know in the story, uh, her father and her mother had died. We don't know how. We don't know when. But she would have been completely orphaned, except for a younger, or a, uh, except for an older cousin. His name was Mordecai, who took her in and raised her. I mean, she was definitely an underdog in the competition. She was an outsider who had been brought in. She wasn't even somebody who was who was. Uh, 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 somebody who was from the kingdom originally. And so, but it says this finally in Esther chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all the nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Now, for most of us, we'd go like, end of story, ha live happily ever after, right? I will follow God if, I will follow God if my life, everything, God just pulls me out of the mess and everything's fine. I will follow God, you know, everybody wants, wants God to do something for them. But this is only chapter two of ten chapters in her story. And... Esther was a nobody, but for some unbelievable reason, God chose to pull her out of the ashes of obscurity and put her into a prominent place. Esther wasn't a perfect person because God doesn't use perfect people. He uses broken people. But we look at her life and we see the success of becoming queen and we say, yeah, I will follow you, Jesus, if you will do that for me. I will follow you if you allow my kids to make good grades and, and get in that school, or if I can get a date, or if I can get that job. I'll follow you if. You never lift me up and you never demand anything of me. And so, so often what happens is we begin to read scripture or we go, into, go to church with that attitude, I'll follow you if. And when a pastor or the Bible talks to us and says, God is calling you to serve others, we get upset because... In our world, God exists for us. 
And so God blows the horn and says, no, stop. And instead of responding the way we should, we give him the finger. And we, we, we turn away and we say, no, God, I will follow you if. The danger of that attitude is this. As soon as God challenges us to do anything uncomfortable in our life, then we turn away from God and go the other way. So that's the first way we can follow God. That's the first way. You know, and this story would be great if all our stories happened with live happily ever after, but that's not life, is it? Second thing we can learn from this is another way to follow God. I will follow you, but. I will follow you, but. You know, and if you've got little kids, have you ever been around little kids? Little kids? You know the, the thing that really is bad about little kids? They'll come up and tell you the truth. You ever had a little kid come up to you and say, uh, you say something to you that's really offensive? You know? Yeah. My wife says, you know, she was really hard teaching school because the thing is, is that little, she taught second grade. And second graders always tell the truth, generally. And they'll come up and say things to you you don't want to hear, but you know it's the truth. Right? That's where the story takes the turn for Esther here because her cousin Mordecai tells her some truth about some things that kind of makes her uncomfortable and makes her question, is God really calling me to follow him? I'll follow you, but it says in chapter 3 of of Esther, verse 1, after all these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadathai, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All of a sudden, this guy Haman shows up. And in the story of Hammond, we have to understand something about Hammond. It says he was, this, he was the uh, uh, son of this guy named, and he was the Agagite. And he was, Agag was the king of a group called the Amalekites who a long time ago, God had called, if we'd read back multiple chapters in the story, what had happened is God had said to them, uh, said to the Israelites, destroy Agag the king and all the Amalekites. But they did not destroy Agag the king and they left a remnant of Amalekites there because God knew eventually what was going to happen. And so they had this animosity between the Jews and the Amalekites and Haman, who was an Amalekite, who had grown up in this king, he had grown up in this kingdom of Persia, and some way had been elevated, had won the lottery some way, and had been elevated to this position of honor. Um, that's who we're talking about here. And it's so, so King Xerxes elevates him and gives him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. And all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. See, Mordecai was one of those Jews who really trusted God and believed in God. And he would vow to no one except for the king himself and the king of kings, God. He said, I won't do that. I won't bow down to anybody else who is, you know, who is not that person. So, so that's what happens. And what happens is, is we, we read through the story and, and, and we see in another, another episode we don't have time to look at today is that one time uh, uh, Mordecai too found out some things about a plot to kill the king. And he goes and he tells, he tells Esther about the plot and, and Esther tells the king. The king finds out it's true and it has the guys killed. But, and it tells him that Mordecai was the one that helped him, but never does anything to really, to really help him along the way. So this is the scenario. This Haman, this God is in charge. He's, 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 uh, hates the Jews. And so what happens is, is that um, is, uh, 
uh, Mordecai won't bow down to him and it makes him angry. And so he decides to have some process of, of eliminating him. And in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, uh, it says this. All the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches... Oh, excuse me. I'm, I'm going to get ahead of myself here. Okay. Slow down a minute. Go back. There's a part of the story I missed out. So what happens is, is that Mordecai is a person who has allegiance to the king. And he has helped the king. Haman is a guy who hates, hates Mordecai. And really is the second in command in the kingdom there. And they go through this whole process there of, of them, you know, of, of, this, of him wanting to, to destroy, destroy, um, destroy Mordecai and destroy all the Jews. And so what happens in the meantime is es- Esther or Mordecai finds out the story about what ha- Haman wants to do, to destroy all the Jews. And he goes and he tells Esther. And he says, Esther... You know, he thinks, Esther, there's something that um, you need to do because you're in a position of power. Now in verse chapter, chapter 4, verse 11, it says, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king um, in the inner court without being summoned, the king has put but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives for 30 days have passed since I was called the king. Mordecai asked Esther to go and do something. Simply to say to the king, King, please do not kill me. Please do not kill my ancestors, the Jews. Don't do this. But the problem is, in that kingdom, in that day, in that age, it wasn't like you had total access to the king unless he called on you. Even the queen did not have that access. And so when Mordecai tells, tells Esther to go and do this, he is asking her to do something that, guess what? It's uncomfortable. It could have even been deadly. It could have been all those things. And Esther's probably thinking in her head, she's going like, well, it may sound like a good idea to you, Mordecai, but it's risky and it's uncomfortable. And, and maybe she thought, well, maybe I can pray about it and I'll ask my friends to pray about it, but I'm not sure that God would ask me to do anything uncomfortable. Surely not anything dangerous. See, the problem is Esther becomes more concerned with her comfort than God's kingdom. And so when God blew the horn and said, Esther, you need need to respond, you've got to step up and do something or thousands of your people will die, her first reaction is to give him the finger and say, it's too, too much for me to do that. Even though she had the only person in the kingdom that probably had the power to do something to help in that situation. It's so often true that before we put down Esther, the thing we have to ask ourselves is, is how many of us have done the same thing? Did you know within a five-mile radius of the campus here at Great Oaks, there's thousands of people who don't know Jesus Christ? And if they don't know Jesus Christ, if they were to die tomorrow, what would happen to them? They would spend eternity in hell. That's a fact, according to Scripture. And I just have to say this, myself included, that sometimes I'm more concerned with the weather or the price of gas or what I'm eating for lunch than my neighbor who lives next door or my coworker who's down the street. I spend more time obsessing or worrying about those things than the people who need God. 
And I'm not saying that you're a wicked, evil person, okay? I just say this. I'm saying when we have that thought in our mind, you've just got your values mixed up. Because so often we'll say, God, I'll follow you, but don't ask me to forgive somebody I want to be mad at. God, I'll follow you, but don't ask me to end a relationship I know I shouldn't be in. God, I'll follow you, but don't ask me to give my money or my time because it's my money and it's my time. Because I know this, this is what I know. You will never be the person God created you to be if you simply sit on your hands and do nothing to reach the thousands of people who are around you that you have access to every day. Because that's what God calls us to. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. You see, that's why this church was started 15 plus years ago. was to reach this community and this world for Christ. To help people take their next step towards God. To reach people that are far from God and help them make their next step. To actually make a difference in our community and our world. And so we can't be people who say, God, I will follow you, but don't ask me to do anything uncomfortable. But the good news is in the story of Esther, even though she, for her first response... And this response was not like she was having a face-to-face with, with Mordecai because she would send a messenger to Mordecai and he'd come back and talk to her and send a messenger to Mordecai and he'd come back and talk to her. The thing was, is this, in this give and take, finally she comes to a place where she goes and she finally follows through and says the one response that we need to do, and it's this, I will follow you no matter what. I will follow you no matter what. You know, we don't like to make commitments. We really don't. Um... Yeah, I'll say this. Okay. There's two groups of people here this morning, okay? And I've already said this once, once before, I'll say it again. There's one group of people that you're here this morning, and you've been coming like a week or two weeks or a few weeks, and you're kind of checking us out, and you're trying to decide if this is the place you want to call church home, right? It's kind of what you do. It's kind of dating, okay? You date the church for a while. And that's fine. That's fine. But the issue is there's another group of people here. And the other group of people are the people who have said, Great Oaks is my home. This is the place I want to be. And so I'm talking to you, this group, this morning. And those of you who are still checking us out, just keep coming, checking us out. Eventually, you've got to make a decision, though. See, dating doesn't last forever. Well, I guess it could. But it's not very healthy, okay? The thing is, finally, you're making a commitment. And so if you've decided that Great Oaks is church is your home... But all you want to do is come here on Sunday morning and sit in a chair and then go home and never serve people here or in the community. You might want to find another place to go because I'm always going to challenge you. I'm always going to challenge you to take the next step, which is always going to be serving God and serving people. Because if you don't, you will never be what God wants you to be. What God created you to be. God has placed you in a special place for a special purpose. And see, none of us are really ready for commitment. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people said, I'm going to wait till, until I'm ready to get married. You'll never be ready. I mean, I got married, man, one day uh, I had one bar of soap and, uh, and one thing of shampoo in the shower. The next day, you know, we're married and she moves in and I have all these things, like 47, you know, products in the, in the bathroom. I don't even want most of them are four, you know? You're ne- you think you're ready, but you're never ready. You know, and, and, and before I got married, I had one pillow on my bed. 
Now I got 47. You know, why do you need that many pillows on your bed? You just throw them in the floor anyway at night, right? I don't get it, but you know, that's part of the deal. You know, you, none of us are ready for commitment. You know, and I've had people say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait until I'm ready to have kids. Have you ever been ready to have kids? Really ready to have kids? I mean, they come along, the next day you pick them up and go like, how do you shut it off? So you make the commitment, and then you get ready. So that's what Mordecai told Esther to do. He says, okay, Esther, yeah, it's true that if you go before the king and ask him to do this, to not to spare us, then what's going to happen is you may be in trouble. This is what he says, though. One of the, some of the most famous words in all of Scripture. Verse 12 through 14 of chapter 4 of Esther. Write this down. Write it on your refrigerator. Put it, the next few verses are the key verses in this whole chapter. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back to her, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent, because she had remained silent up to this time, nobody knew in, in his household. Uh, king Xerxes did not know she was a Jew because Mordecai had told her to keep it secret. Nobody knew she was a Jew, but he said it will come out. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And this is the important verse. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai reminded Esther of her obligation. Of how God has worked in her life to get you here. You are here for such a time as this. Because of what God has done in your life, Esther, thousands of people can be saved. And I will say to you, each one of you here, myself included, you are exactly where you are in your life right now for such a time as this. All of your experiences, good and bad, all of your training, all of your giftedness, God is bringing together for such a time as this the reason you work where you work, go to school where you go to school, live where you live, God has planted you there so you can make a difference for him if you call yourself a Christian. See, God wants us, he says, to be salt and light where we live and where we are. And the time to do that is now. And how should we respond to that, the, the fact, that fact? Well, this is what Esther says. She replies to Mordecai. She says, then Esther sends this reply to Mordecai. Go together, uh, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I will go to my attendants will, will fast as you do. Then when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I will perish. I'm going to go before God. I'm going to humble myself before God. I'm going to seek his face through prayer and fasting. And then at the end of this time, I'm going to do what I know I need to do. It might be uncomfortable. It might even be dangerous. But it's what God has called me to do. And if we read the rest of the story here, we will find out that literally God changed the history of the world through her. Through her. One girl who was willing to say, his kingdom over my comfort. And I begin to think, and I'm asking myself this question, if he could do that through one girl, do that much through one girl, what could he do through 600 
that's what it normally, five or six hundred people here on Sunday morning. What could God do through six hundred sold out people who really believe that if God has called us to something greater than us, and he wants us to make an impact on our world, to the people in our schools, to the people in our, in our workplaces, to the people that we live around in our community, if we begin to do that and allow God to work through us, then what could he do? And I want to share with you, some of you here uh, this morning are there. You're there. You are doing, you're making an impact. There are people in this church who are making an impact. They've committed themselves, their resources, their time to God. And I praise God for you. Because that's what this is all about. And those are the people that have the greatest joy in their lives. And if you're not one of them, join them. See, if I could have any one wish for you, it would be that you would be the person God has created you to be, and you will never do it by sitting and watching. You have to get in the game. God has placed you where you are for such a time as this. So what are you going to do? I want to challenge you to do one thing this week. Do what Esther did. Get before God. Pray, even fast. I know it's tough, but it's doable. You fast, not so you just, it's not about not eating food. It's about centering yourself before God and saying, God, I'm going to give away all this time so I can focus. The time that I normally be eating, I'll be praying. I'll be seeking you. I'll be reading your word, God. What is it you want me to do? In this, for such a time as this, what do you want me to do? And then do it. Then do it. That's what God's word is saying to us. God has created every one of us like an Esther. He has given us opportunities. He's given us giftedness. And he's placed us in places where we can make a difference. Will you step up? Will you say, God, I'll follow you no matter what? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.